Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 10th of January, 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today, we have Charles Mallet and Vanessa Bailey. Um, now, Vanessa, uh, we're going to get straight off, straight on now with uh, the ICJ uh, consideration of whether Israel has committed genocide or not. Yeah, and um, a lot of action around this, actually, um, mostly in support of uh, the case that South Africa is bringing of uh, Israel committing genocide in Palestine. So first of all, uh, Bolivia, a number of countries now are, are coming in to support South Africa, finally. Um, Bolivia, uh, Maldives, Namibia, Pakistan, and Venezuela, and the uh, Deputy Prime Minister of Belgium put out a tweet yesterday, Petra de Sutter, um, Belgium cannot stand by and watch the immense human suffering in Gaza. We must act against the threat of genocide. I want Belgium to take action at the ICJ following the lead of South Africa, and I will propose this within uh, the Belgian government. And then today there was a report of 800 global groups backing South Africa's genocide case as the ICJ prepares for the hearing. As I said, that will be broadcast live tomorrow, certainly on the UN TV uh, website. Um, an international coalition to stop genocide in Palestine, including the National Lawyers Guild, Black Alliance of Peace, etc. Um, the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Corporation, has endorsed South Africa's application at the ICJ against Israel. That includes 57 member states. And even inside Israel, um, there is a report in Jerusalem Post today of uh, a far-left uh, lawmaker joined the Gaza genocide lawsuit at the ICJ. Uh, just moving on to the text within the article, a uh, member of the Hadash Pa'al party, Ofer Kassif, uh, announced on Sunday that he would be joining the lawsuit against Israel and The Hague. In his announcement, he claimed, my constitutional duty is to Israeli society and all its residents, not to a government whose members and its coalition are calling for ethnic cleansing and even actual genocide. Immediately afterwards, he stated, those who hurt the country and the people are the ones who led South Africa to turn to The Hague, not me and my friends. Then let's, let's have a guess whether uh, Britain is supporting the South African action in the ICJ. Um, first of all, there are demands uh, for the Israeli ambassador to UK, uh, to UK uh, expulsion after a clear call for genocide. The Israeli ambassador has gone on national British radio and incited genocide, said one columnist. This is an illegal act under the 1948 Genocide Convention, added to which uh, there has been an emailed letter to David Cameron from Azal Khan, MP from Manchester. Gorton, uh, what does uh, Mr. Cron say in his letter to Cameron? He's writing to express his deep disgust and condemnation of the comments made by Israel's ambassador to the UK. Speaking to Ian Dale, the ambassador claimed that in Gaza, every school, every mosque, every second house has access to tunnels and ammunition. And when asked by the presenter whether this was effectively a call for destroying the whole of Gaza, the ambassador simply asked, do you have another solution? He claims that this is a clear call for genocide against Palestinians in Gaza, live on UK radio, and this must be met by the strongest condemnation by Cameron and uh, the Prime Minister. And then um, let's have a look at how David Cameron is uh, handling the situation. 
when he's put under pressure to, to explain Britain's legal uh, position on whether or not Gaza is occupied. So let's roll this video. Uh, Florence, just take back for a moment. What is the UK's current legal position on whether or not Gaza is occupied? Um, our position is that, um, that Israel is um, fighting a campaign against Hamas. We have to check regularly whether that is in compliance with international humanitarian law and assess that. Um, I don't think Israel regards itself as an occupying force, but whether that is correct, I would want to take legal advice, because this comes to this issue about aid, where I think Israel needs to do more, a lot more, to get more aid into Gaza, which perhaps we can come on to. And forgive me, we know that Israel does not consider itself to be an occupying yeah. power, but British law currently does consider Gaza to be an occupied power. Can you, uh, oh, sorry, an occupied territory. Can you just confirm that on the record? I, I, I don't know the precise legal definition of that. I'd have to go back and check. Philip? I think um, we all know I, that the Foreign Office does know what the official legal position is. I mean, we describe, we describe the territories as the occupied Palestinian territories, but oh, that's, that's a, a different question. That's a descriptor. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We should give you the, a piece of written advice on the legal position. I think what the Chair's asking is, do we consider Gaza to be occupied militarily at the moment? Is that what you're getting at? I'm asking for the, Brit the British government's legal definition, whatever they consider to be the terminology of that you occupy, because as I understand it, there is no question that in law, under British law, and according to the UN Security Council Relation 23334, on which we have based our legal position, Gaza is an occupied territory, and therefore from that, Israel does have obligations as an occupying and just extraordinary how he fumbles his way through that, remembering, of course, David Cameron is um, a conservative Friends of Israel um, member. And the second video that I want to show is from Sir Michael Ellis, who's described by Wikipedia as a prominent Jewish MP, conservative MP, of course, um, and again is a member of the conservative Friends of Israel. So let's see what he had to say about South Africa's case. Is my right honourable friend aware that South Africa are geopolitically moving towards Iran and openly support Hamas? Indeed, their foreign secretary said that Israel doesn't even have the right to defend itself. They are in danger of becoming a terrorist proxy. Now, I can say as a former Attorney General that South Africa's case at The Hague has no legal merit whatsoever. Israel's actions are in lawful self-defence. It's a dangerous political stunt that the United States has already criticised. Extraordinary. And then finally, we have the infamous Julia Hartley uh, Brewer, who in her latest interview with um, Tom Slater and Hamish de Bretton Gordon, um, seems to advocate the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, describing it as perfectly normal. So let's just have a look at this. Solution is that these people aren't in this sort of prison camp that Gaza's been called, even though, of course, actually, you see pictures before, um, you know, not at all a prison camp. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that maybe, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, that, that these people should be offered a new life elsewhere. Now, many may not want it, but we have seen, and I was really surprised when I discovered this. This is my own ignorance, and apologies for that, but this, the awful phrase ethnic cleansing, and I don't like that phrase. There's a difference between, you know, uh, people being, you know, uh, uh, you know, killed to be to be removed from a, a a piece of land, 
than, than, than the forced expulsion. This has happened numerous times and in recent years, since the, since the Second World War, there were huge numbers of peoples in their millions who were moved from, you know, from, from lands, moved to basically there was non-stop uh, you know, fighting between ethnic minorities, right? You know, you're, you know, you're going to Greece, you're going to Turkey, you're going to Albania, you're going wherever. This has actually been incredibly common. And of course, we've seen the ethnic cleansing of Jews and Christians in the Middle East without anyone batting an eye lid about that. Um, do you think that may be the answer? Well, she doesn't like the term ethnic cleansing, but she's quite happy to actually promote it. Incredible. I mean, the moral bankruptcy of the media and, and government representatives in the UK is horrifying in my view. Um, I think I agree with that uh, very much, Vanessa, and we'll talk about a little bit more about that in extra. Uh, now, let's uh, come back to uh, Europe. And uh, well, on Monday, we were talking about the uh, G German farmers protest. Uh, those protests continue uh, because this is a week of action taking place. Uh, and, uh, well, uh, the week of action includes a three-day nationwide strike by tra train drivers. That has now begun. Uh, and uh, so Germany suffering uh, transport on the roads, problems with transport on the roads, problems with transport on the railways. Um, they have announced there will be a further round table uh, with the German government, between the farmers and the German government, on the 15th of January. And we'll see what happens uh, with that. But in the meantime, of course, the media, as the media does, uh, attempts to paint this whole thing as a far-right uh, exploitation exercise. Um, so that narrative, though, seems to have failed, more or less. Uh, but uh, in Poland, then, uh, Polish truckers have now joined, uh, sorry, Polish truckers have now joined with the German farmers in protest. And this is quite interesting because the Polish truckers have been uh, blockading the Ukrainian uh, border with Poland uh, over the last three months since November um, because uh, effectively they are saying that uh, Ukrainian truckers have uh, a, a commercial advantage over them because of the uh, favours that are being done uh, and so on since the invasion of Ukraine. Um, but uh, Polish farmers themselves have now also, well, they have also been as, uh, blockading the uh, Ukrainian border since uh, I think it was the 23rd of November last year. Uh, this blockade uh, took a, a quick hiatus over Christmas. It's now been lifted uh, because the agriculture minister has agreed to implement three demands that he has made or from the farmers, which includes a billion uh, Polish lottery uh, subsidy for corn, an increase in uh, money and loans to farmers uh, to uh, 2.5 billion Slotty and an increase, or sorry, no increase in the agricultural tax. But the problem here is that the uh, po Polish uh, agriculture minister said that this process, or that, that whether that proceeds or not, is all dependent on the approval of the European Commission. Um, so we will see where that goes. But Charles, uh, let me welcome you to the programme and uh, move on to farming in the UK. Thanks very much, Mike, and good afternoon. And I'll start by talking about what Steve Barclay, the Environment Minister, has said at last week's Oxford Farming Conference, which itself was celebrating the power of diversity, if we just click on one. And really, what did he mean by this? Well, he was introducing the Agricultural Transition Plan, which he is coaching in terms to suggest that it enables DEFRA to have freedom of manoeuvre that didn't exist pre-Brexit. And therefore, how are they going to be apportioning the money that they have at their disposal and 
to what end? So we'll just have a little look at what exactly this means. Uh, there are two main schemes that he's talking about. He refers to the biggest upgrade to UK farming schemes since leaving the EU. And he's really talking about the Sustainable Farming Incentive, the SFI, and the country stewardship grants. Now, what he's suggesting is that there is, in effect, a mutual benefit to the growing of food, the food production side of it, and the sustainable environment side of it, and that the two are not in conflict with one another. The United Kingdom at the moment produces around 60% of the food and drink that it consumes. So we'll just talk about the, the SFI um, and, and indeed the, the country's stewardship, but particularly the way in which people are going to be pushed because uh, the, the SFI, whilst it does appear that it is supporting mostly food production initiatives, I'd be, I'd be grateful to hear from farmers listening and watching as to whether they do actually perceive that that is the case. Uh, but with the, with the country stewardship grants, there are, just by way of example, it's possible to obtain £1,600 per hectare for construction of a reed bed, whereas if you're wanting to put in an application to support your sheep grazing, you'll get £10 per hectare. So it's hard to see how people would bother with such uh, an initiative. And of course, with the SFI, even if it does appear to be in, in the name of food production, of course, it creates a dependency. And then if there's a change of direction, then the recipient, of course, is somewhat vulnerable. But in terms of food production and uh, the statistics that are involved with that, which was on screen a second ago, um, the most recent statistics are suggesting that there's a sort of food industry total of about 254 billion, of which about 10% goes to export. So, so straight away, uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of food that's actually not going to this country not being uh, consumed in this country. Um, and of course, there's also the inflationary aspect. So we'll just look at the, the latest figures and indeed the graph that shows very much above average uh, increase in inflation where it's concerning food. So what exactly is happening to the money and, and what is this all about? Now, a few weeks ago, I spoke about natural capital and indeed uh, how that's going to be sort of deployed as a mechanism of, of land use. And this comes from a green future, our 25-year plan, which is what underpins this agricultural transition plan. And within that text, there is a statement about forestry saying the value of natural capital is routinely understated. If we look at England's woods and forests, for example, as a national asset, using a natural capital approach, the value of the services they deliver is an estimated 2.3 billion. Of this sizable sum, according to a recent study, only a small proportion, 10%, is in timber values. So the point to make about that is that whilst Barclay is suggesting an uplift of £168 million towards farmers, that's really a drop in the ocean. Really, what he's much more interested in is the private finance initiatives, which he wants to inject into the system to a value of about £500 million a year, going up to £1 billion by 2030. And these are, these are to invest in what, he, what he's calling nature recovery. But the critical detail is it's not money that's being injected purely for the benefit of nature recovery through schemes such as the Green Finance Initiative. 
it's to suggest that the, the private finance is going to go in, obviously expecting a return on its investment. So what we what we await is to see exactly how that's going to be done and how this relates back to the direction that farmers are being pushed with with financial incentives. Uh, and so, Charles, uh, since the, this type of nonsense in the EU has resulted in well, the Dutch farmers initially and the German farmers now and, and other farming communities in other European countries coming out in support of the Germans, um, this, is not, this has been impl- impl- uh, happening in the UK as well. The question is, are we starting to see the same kind of angst amongst UK farmers as we have on the uh, continental side? I don't get the sense that we're at that state of fever pitch as yet. But as you say, there have been rumblings about it. And it seems, if anything, that Barclay's throwing a, an attempt at a sweetener at this stage. But of course, what he ignores is the absolutely enormous costs of production and indeed the reasons behind them. But I think we'll come on to cover some of that in, later on in the programme. Okay, thanks, uh, Charles, for that. Now, uh, let's move on. It's still with uh, Net Zero here. And uh, I want to bring this tweet on screen. This is from the Together uh, organisation and uh, Together Declaration. Sorry. Uh, has your council uh, signed up with UK 100? If yours is on the list, it has anti-democratically pledged to put net zero agenda before voters' wishes and the public's interest, and they list all the various councils uh, on there. Uh, and uh, well, this then was picked up by the Telegraph, and uh, the Telegraph headline says councils make undemocratic pledges in dash to reach net zero. So what are they talking about? Well, this is the organisation here, UK 100. Uh, powers in place, the powers local authorities have a need to take ambition ambition action, I guess that's supposed to say ambitious action toward net zero. Uh, uh, They pinned this tweet uh, yesterday or the day before, UK 100 is a network of local leaders who've pledged to lead a rapid transition to net zero with clean air in their communities ahead of government uh, legal target. What does this mean? Now, of course, this is a topic that we've been covering on the UK column for quite some time. Uh, the fact that, that uh, aside from whatever national governments are doing, that cities and local governments are moving ahead with the net zero policy anyway. But I just want to give everybody a feel for the type of networks that we're talking about here, because, of course, UK 100 is only one organisation. We've mentioned many of the others on this programme before. But let's just have a look at this. City of Sunderland. Now, if you're watching Friday's programme, Ben was talking about the uh, efforts to split uh, the young away from the old and really make the young believe that the old are responsible for all their woes. Um, so this is uh, a uh, environmental green and sustainable group at the City of Sunderland uh, Council. Uh, and this is what they say. The Environmental Green and Sustainable Group is a citywide low carbon youth forum that is run with and for Sunderland's children and young people. This group aims to empower young people through discussing the climate crisis, low carbon and action being taken in Sunderland. After each group meeting, EGS representatives meet with the city's senior leaders at the 2030 shadow board meetings to contribute uh, to low carbon discussions and decisions. Um, Now, let's uh, have a look at this then. They go on to say uh, that it's a partnership between an organization called Involve, uh, UK 100 that we've just been talking about, Democratic Society, another organization, another one called Shared Future, and another one called Climate Outreach. And they work with local authorities to take forward public engagement projects on climate policy. But who's behind it all? You don't have to go and look very far with these types of things to come across Common Purpose. Um, And Common Purpose has been working at this for a very long time. 
So what they say here is that non-profit information, common purpose, who work uh, in over 200 cities globally, uh, delivered the Sunderland 60 Legacy Programme, uh, and that brought together 18 to 25-year-olds from a range of employers and education providers across the city to take, a part in an, take part in an international leadership programme. Their focus was learning and developing ideas on how to make Sunderland a cleaner, greener city for generations to come. So, you know, it, when you have an organisation like Common Purpose, which has been running leadership programmes for the last 20, 30 years, whatever it is, uh, they've uh, given people their leadership training, They've put them in positions uh, in local government, in national government, in the civil service, in corporates. Uh, and of course, those people then become responsible for hiring uh, the next generation. In the meantime, Common Purpose is busy training the next generation. Then you can see how this type of uh, uh, policy agenda works its, through way, th works its way through every single aspect of our society. And that's the danger in it. Now, uh, if you want to find out a, a little bit more about uh, the Together Declaration, uh, have a look at uh, this interview that I did, uh, went out last week, uh, debating the climate with Ben Pyle. If you haven't seen that yet already, it's on the front page of the UK Column website. Uh, do watch that, um, that interview. Uh, but Charles, coming back to you then, uh, let's talk about batteries. Thanks, Mike. Yes, battery energy storage systems, or BESS, which you may not have heard of, but I would say that they encapsulate the way in which the government has handled the net zero and the renewable energy agenda, and indeed its, its overall modus operandi. So from the national grid, we have an explanation as to exactly what these things are, and common sense would dictate that this would have happened many years ago, with the creation of temperamental sources of power like solar and wind. I've got a chart here from the National Grid last night, which shows the amount of energy being produced from various sources. And whilst it says that 31.6 is from renewables, you'll see a big fat zero there for solar, because obviously the sun does not shine at night. So the idea is that we would have batteries to harness this capability and uh, going back to UK Column content, I would urge at this point to listen to Mike's interview with Steve Gorham, The Road to Zero, from last month, in which he articulates exactly the benefits sort of per square foot of these various types of technology. But nonetheless, battery energy storage solutions are being produced by a raft of different companies. The one I'd like to look at today by way of a case study is Harmony Energy. And this is a sort of well, not, not necessarily an artist's impression, but a, but a site might look exactly like this, effectively huge banks of lithium-ion batteries. And Harmony describe themselves as providing uh, renewable energy generation storage projects, supporting the creation of a cleaner, more secure and affordable energy system. In doing so, they help deliver a more environmentally, socially and financially sustainable future for everyone. Well, is that really the case? We'll go on to have a look at what they're doing in West Yorkshire by way of a planning application in Wakefield Council, still live. The, if you want to look at it yourself, the planning number is down in the, in the bottom by, in a red rectangle. But um, what is perhaps astounding, bearing in mind the situation, is that the Town and Country Planning Act does not actually have a provision within it for there to be any sort of 
fire assessment for such a facility. Nonetheless, as a consultee, having been informed about the application, the fire service, the West Yorkshire Fire Service, have interjected and put forward a series of what would be regarded as very damning comments. First of all, they say that uh, the authority finds it concerning that no specific information in relation to fire safety management of the proposal has been provided in the application. They go on to say that the uh, control measures, they note the tender of the battery installation has not yet taken place. They find it concerning that no specific information in relation to fire risk and explosion has been incorporated. And then finally, they have a, a, a part about the, the potential sort of fallout from a disaster. They say the risks of vapour cloud, thermal runaway and explosion are unfortunately very real and are becoming more common as we see an increase in the number of best installations rise. What they go on to articulate is frankly horrifying in that they they say that at the moment technology doesn't exist to effectively put out a lithium-ion battery fire, and therefore you'd either have to let it burn, or if you tried to mitigate at all, they estimate that over a 24-hour period it would require five and a half million litres of water to, to attempt to put out such a fire. And of course, the the other aspect of this is the, the f- frankly catastrophic environmental consequences such as atmospheric pollution, land pollution, soil degradation, threat to human life, and all sorts of other things that does not seem to have gone at all into the consideration of this. So where does this come from? Well, we look to the government and their battery strategy in which they explain Uh, rather unbelievably, that though it was not a question in the call for evidence survey, many respondents offered comments on battery safety. Such concerns focused not only on the inherent risk uh, that batteries pose, but also the risks to the wider environment if they're mismanaged. For example, it is vital that a UK battery strategy considers the safety implications of some battery chemistries and the damage they can cause to the UK infrastructure if they are mismanaged. Well, indeed, uh, but they seem very reluctant to do so. Now, I've got a a headline here from the Fire Industry Association, overheating lithium batteries. Uh, But of course, the, the battery strategy is still reluctant to concede this. And they state that the the instance of uh, of these types of fire are, are very low, and that actually they're commensurate with with ordinary vehicle fires. But the London Fire Brigade, who I would consider to be a higher authority on the matter, say that fires involving lithium batteries are the fastest growing fire risk in London. So far in 2023, we've been called to, on average, an e-bike or e-scooter fire once every two days. In 2022, we attended 87 e-bike and 29 e-scooter fires. Uh, a total of 116 fires. So whilst I don't mean to compare apples with oranges, there clearly is a present danger in the construction of such facilities because of the the content of them, the lithium-ion content. So what's being done about this? Well, Maria Miller, MP, is putting through uh, a bill at the moment um, about battery storage, uh, which has will have provisions specifically that there is a, a fire element to this. Um, and indeed, this will be one to watch. To give an indication of how prevalent this sort of thing is, and if you want to be checking out what's happening in your local area, may I refer you to the Renewable Energy Planning Database, which at the moment 
has 9,900 live projects on it, of which a considerable number concern battery energy storage systems. Okay, thanks for that, Charles. Okay, let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us. Uh, there are methods for helping uh, helping us out at uh, community.ukcolumn.org. Please uh, head over there, have a look at that. You can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please uh, share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, tomorrow's interview at 1pm, uh, Debbie will be interviewing a group of three uh, young uh, men who have, uh, well, one in particular has found himself uh, out of education, prevented from being educated as a result of the PREVENT scheme. Uh, no, he is not an Islamic terrorist. Uh, he, in fact, uh, asked questions about uh, gender issues and whether it was appropriate for people to be using uh, the incorrect bathrooms and toilets uh, at the, his educational establishment and was kicked out. So uh, have a watch at that 1pm tomorrow in the usual places. Uh, a quick reminder that uh, 20, 20th to 21st of February is the final hearing for Julian Assange, and they are starting to campaign to encourage people to gather outside the Royal Courts of Justice uh, at eight, the beginning at 8.30 a.m. So we will be reminding everybody of that. Uh, and a quick reminder that Andrew Bridgen will be uh, hosting another excess mortality debate in Parliament on the 16th of January, beginning at 9.30. He's asking for people to contact their MPs. I've heard from a couple of people so far, somebody saying that one MP has said they will not be able to attend that, but they will read Hansard. Uh, so maybe that's uh, something. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Now, let me uh, welcome uh, Clive to Carl to the programme. Uh, Clive, uh, it's great to see you on the UK Column News. It's been a long time uh, since I've spoken to you on this platform. Um, we want to uh, let everybody know, first of all, um, well, first of all, you can tell everybody a little bit about yourself, but we want to let everybody know that we are restarting the Health Revolution program that we haven't made, I think, since uh, 2014 or so. Yes, that's right. Uh, you know, I, I see my role as trying to simplify health. You know, medicine, the way doctors are taught, is incredibly complicated and difficult, but health actually is reasonably simple to understand. And over the years, I've got a fairly good understanding and feel that I can suggest to anybody who's got an issue that maybe there, there is an easy or several easy answers to them. You know, I discovered the hard way when I was in hospital 38 years ago. Uh, the doctors told me what I, my problem, which was rheumatoid arthritis and a few other things, was incurable. There was nothing that could be done. And uh, that was it. And they kept trying to give me drugs, and I explained I wasn't low on drugs. And eventually, I figured it out, reading books and so on. I checked myself out of hospital, fixed all the arthritis, and now I'm pretty fine. And so, uh, you know, the doctors say, oh, you've got fibromyalgia, you know, multiple muscle pains. Well, that's meaningless. It's not something you catch. It's something that you're uh, either nutrient deficient in or perhaps toxically poisoned with that's causing it. Yeah, we're meant to be healthy until the very day we die. And uh, so, you know, I invite people to ask questions uh, that perhaps I can answer and explain how to be well again. Yes, indeed. So for the first episode that we're going to record on Tuesday next week, uh, we would like to invite everybody to to uh, submit questions for Clive and we will uh, answer those questions or many of them as we possibly can. 
Uh, but then in subsequent programs, uh, we're going to have some guests on as well. Exactly. Um, the very first show we did in whenever it was, 2012, 2013, was um, related to children, because I feel that children are the future and the most important thing health-wise. So we'll be doing uh, the first show uh, with, in the interview part of the series uh, about how to, how to help children. You know, the statistic at the moment that I heard from uh, Kerry Rivera, who wrote the book, how to reverse the symptoms known as autism was that by 2030, it looks like 50% of children will be autistic in the United States. And she reminded me that uh, most autistic children are incapable of having children. So if one's looking at a depopulation event, um, that's one that needs considering. And doctors are taught that these things cannot be reversed. But many, many thousands of children have proved demonstrably that it can be reversed. Um, okay, um, and uh, it is, I mean, one of the things that struck me about uh, the way that you approach this issue, Clive, is that um, you're looking for the best solutions where, wherever they come from. Well, yes, you know, my dad used to have a poster on his wall above his desk, which said, my tastes are simple, I just like the best. And that was his view, that the best lasts the longest. It's what you're looking for. And you know, over the, a couple of decades or more, I, what I've realized is that we are a bunch of vitamins and a bunch of minerals and a few amino acids. And if you're missing one of those important essential nutrients that create a healthy body, you won't have a healthy body. So then I realized that actually most people's symptoms are very similar. I realized that most people are actually deficient in really very few important, mainly minerals. And so what I'm, what I'm hoping to do over the next time period is explain what those minerals are and why they're absolutely essential. Uh, I'm going to explain actually how inexpensive they are. You know, parking at the hospital for a few hours is probably going to cost more than the supplement that might change your life. Yes, and uh, of course, not just minerals and, and uh, vitamins, but fats as well. Well, yes, I mean, food in general, you know, the reality is that most people are eating not processed food, but ultra-processed food, processed to such a degree that it is no longer very much good for us. And, you know, so many labels on the foods in the supermarkets tell you it's a health food. That doesn't mean that's true. Yes. And so I, I'm hoping to explain how to eat really well by choosing the right foods in the first place and uh, which ones are really worthwhile. Uh, but of course, there's no uh, single answer for everyone. Absolutely right. You know, recently, several of my friends uh, who couldn't seem to overcome uh, their health issues went raw carnivore. I know others who raw vegan sorted them out. You know, it's um, everybody is different, but it you know over the years it's become easier for me to try and work out what's right for each person. Yes. Okay. Brilliant, Clive. Thank you very much for joining us today. We will uh, record this on Tuesday next week. So send your uh, 
your questions in to me, so you can send them to mike at ukcolumn.org. If you're a UK column member, there's a forum post uh, for that. If you would like to leave your questions there, uh, please do. Um, so, Clive, I'm going to say thank you very much, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing you next week. Um, okay, let's move on. And uh, Vanessa, back to the Middle East, and well, a relatively dark topic. Yeah, well, I mean, I wanted to really focus on the crimes that are alleged to be being committed by the uh, Israeli forces, both in Gaza and in the West Bank, in, in the light of the ICG, ICJ um, case that is going to be heard tomorrow. So this was published by 972 magazine. It's actually uh, an Israeli uh, or an Israel-based outlet. If you remember, it, it produced the report or the investigation into the Israeli AI genocide factory using AI to determine civilian uh, targets and, and enable the Israeli forces to actually massacre more uh, than they have done in previous aggressions. So basically inside uh, Israel's torture camp for Gaza detainees, I'm just gonna read one paragraph that summarizes what the report is about, but I would recommend that everybody takes a look at it. According to the testimonies that they gathered, Israeli soldiers subjected Palestinian detainees to electric shocks, burned their skin with lighters, spat in their mouths, deprived them of sleep, food, and access to bathrooms until they defecated on themselves. Many were tied to a fence for hours, handcuffed and blindfolded for most of the day. Some testified to having been beaten all over their bodies and having cigarettes extinguished on their necks or backs. Several people are known to have died as a result of being held in these conditions. And then um, the other problem that, there, uh, that is being reported, this is by the WHO representative that has entered Al-Aqsa Hospital in Gaza, that there are 600 patients missing from the hospital after uh, Israel laid the hospital uh, to siege and has been shelling and targeting the hospital itself. So let's have a look at what they actually said. Um, it has no information about the location of hundreds of patients and health workers at the Al-Aqsa Hospital in the Gaza Strip. In a social media post, a WHO director said the World Health Body has received troubling reports about increasing combat operations and evacuation orders near the vital Al-Aqsa Hospital in the middle area of Gaza, forcing over 600 patients and most health workers to leave, and their locations are not currently known. Of course, Euromed Monitor has been also raising the alarm about the potential of organ theft, um, both from the, the, the live detainees um, and the dead bodies that have been returned after being uh, detained by the Israeli forces. Of course, there is a well-documented history of Israel taking the organs without permission from uh, the bodies of Palestinians. And this is from a Mondo Vice report in 2021. Uh, Israel even criminalizes dead Palestinian bodies. Let's see what they mean by that. Um, Israel subjects Palestinians to a brutal military occupation that inflicts various forms of state-sanctioned violence on every sector of society. However, Israel does not only brutalize Palestinians while they're alive. The settler colonial state also engages in necroviolence, a practice of humiliating, desecrating, and withholding the bodies of dead Palestinians from their families. 
the Palestinian body is heavily criminalized and treated just as violently dead as they were alive, and in the process, therefore, become sites for Israeli militaristic and colonial practices. Um, Defense Minister in 2019, Naftali Bennett, instructed the Israeli military to completely stop the release of terrorist Palestinian bodies and family members for religious burial. And this policy of withholding Palestinian bodies can be dated on and off as early as 1967. So it's nothing new. A very recent video has emerged, although the act itself took uh, place in November 2023 in Gaza City, while um, a group of civilians were surrendering, surrendering um, exiting one of the streets and holding white flags, uh, a woman at the front of the group was sniped by the Israeli forces. So let's just have a look at this video. Um, you might note there was also a child um, with the woman when she was uh, shot. They do try to retrieve the body after. Um, at the same time, families of Israelis killed by tank fire on the 7th of October demand a probe. They're not the only ones demanding a probe. Um, most of the relatives of those that are still being held hostage in Gaza are demanding uh, various actions from the government. Um, basically, the families demanded the Israeli army carry out an in-depth and transparent investigation of the decisions and the actions that led to the tragic outcome. Uh, Barak Hiram, Brigadier General Commander of the 99th Division, who was at the scene, told the New York Times that at nightfall, he told his soldiers the negotiations are over and told the tank commander to break in even at the cost of civilian casualties. And another thing that we're seeing very regularly are uh, Israeli forces inside Gaza celebrating the wanton destruction of civilian infrastructure, homes, uh, hospitals, places of worship, churches, etc. And this is just one very short example video. <laughs> פוסק דברים שפוגעים בלחימה, אבל אנחנו רוצים לומר במסר אחד ברור, אנחנו ממשיכים בדיוק באותה דרך, כי יש רק פתרון אחד לרצועה. No, no, I mean, you know, I just wanted to demonstrate, and, and what I'm doing is taking everything pretty much from uh, Israeli media. Um, to 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 present the fact that it's not only uh, you know uh, partisan media, let's say, that is reporting on these crimes of the Israeli forces. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Vanessa. Charles, let's move to you and uh, and migration. A related topic, or at least it should be. Yes, the Home Office has put out a procurement tender for provision of travel services for immigration purposes. And this is talking about having a service to move people, sufficient travel methods to ensure that individuals with no legal basis to remain in the UK 
can be removed to overseas destinations. This includes ensuring those methods can accommodate vulnerable individuals, such as those with medical conditions or those who refuse to comply with transfer. So UK Columns obviously spoken about this sort of thing a lot in the past, particularly with regard to Rwanda. But critically, this is open, this tender is open till the 1st of April, and it says that it's going to last for up to five years with a possible pass-through cost of between £300 million and £2 billion, which is obviously an enormous spread. So exactly what is meant by this and why they're talking about asylum. So we'll look at the House of Commons library paper and we'll just think a bit about what asylum means. According to Amnesty, asylum or an asylum seeker is essentially somebody who has not yet been granted legal status as a refugee in whichever country it is that they have moved to and they are supposed to have been fleeing direct persecution or significant violations of human rights. But of course, as far as the British government and the British taxpayer is concerned, we have the thorny issue of there being seldom any verification of such persecution. And indeed, the question that remains unanswered is why are so many men coming over to this country unaccompanied? So we'll look at the statistics, or at least consider them. And um, this graph here shows the trend, upwards trend, with a very sharp spike on the right-hand side. And I'll come to that in a second. But what I'll point out is that a significant change has been between the numbers of people who had their asylum uh, query or um, application refused versus accepted. So in 2004, only 15%, Mm. sorry, Mike, we just go back one, only 15% were um, granted That figure has risen to over 50% from 2019. And again, success on appeal. Back in 2004, only 19% were successful on appeal. And now since 2014, there are over 40% successful on 2014. What this graph here illustrates, and in contrast with the historical context, which was that over 60% of asylum seekers or refugees were from the Middle East and Africa. This is really showing the 179,000 Ukrainians that have applied for uh, asylum or refugee status within the United Kingdom up to June 2023. So it's a little out of date now. But just to contextualise that, that figure equates to seven years worth, 2014 to 2021, Um, statistics for the granting of refugee status in this country. So that's one part of it, the sheer numbers. The other very significant thing, which the Prime Minister was in effect in hot water over before Christmas, is what is happening to these people when they're in the system. So the graph here, again, with a huge upward trend, the bit to concentrate on is the light green colour, which shows the more than six months old. So in effect, these are people who have come into the system but have not been dealt with. Now, the reason that's significant is that the Home Office have, in effect, tried to bluff it by using terminology that is designed to confuse. And they've put statistics out via the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, which have been checked by the Office for Statistical Regulation, Uh, following an inquiry by the BBC. So the chief executive wrote back to the BBC to explain in terminological sense what had happened. And the text, Mike, if you just bring the text up, please, next. 
Um, the, an application is described as a non-substantiated withdrawal if the applicant fails to cooperate with the process to examine and decide the asylum claim within a reasonable time period. The error within the data, therefore, means that it is not at present publicly reported how many applicants would fall into the category described as missing. That is, the number of applications that are classified as non-substantiated withdrawals. Now, I appreciate that's a little bit confusing, but in effect, what it means is that the Home Office has far less of a grip on who's where and why than they are putting out in the public domain. So what's the effect of this? And more likely, or more importantly, what is the cost of it? And we look at the illegal uh, migration bill, which is going through the Commons at the moment, and they state that the broken, the current broken asylum system costs the United Kingdom around three, £3 billion a year and rising and around £6 million a day on hotel bills. So... Because it's often cited that the reason for such migration in the first place is because not enough is being done in these countries by the Western world. And effectively, if the conditions there were better, this wouldn't be such an outcome. Of course, what's not really talked about is why people travel all the way to the United Kingdom. And another statistic that I had meant to point out was that France has a much, much higher refusal rate, for example, than the United Kingdom, as does Germany. But we'll just look at the statistics on international development and how much aid are we actually putting into these countries. And you'll see that there's a, a steep decline in the top two lines, which are, as I say, the historic recipients of Africa and Asia. But what is on a very steep upward trend is aid to Ukraine, which is represented by that red line. So I thought just to put the the figures in context, we'd look at, again, a House of Commons briefing paper on Ukraine, because this talks admittedly about military assistance. But when you think that, um, going back to the farming piece earlier, that £168 million has been given to farmers in our country, in the United Kingdom, it is significant to note that the United Kingdom is one of the leading donors to Ukraine alongside the United States and Germany. To date, the United Kingdom has pledged over £9.3 billion in overall support to Ukraine, of which £4.6 billion is for military assistance. So that puts into context in some way the state of play within the uh, asylum and refugee system, and indeed what countermeasures there are, such as they can be. But, but we'll have to wait and see as to whether any of this is actually going to be effective in any way. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Charles. Uh, and Vanessa, let's come back to you then. And I guess this is also related uh, because expansion of settlements in Israel. Yeah, the illegal expansion of settlements, of course, recognised by the UN as illegal. Um, uh, Apart from Peace Now, which is up on the screen, which talks about an unmatched surge in settlement activity in the West Bank since the onset of the Gaza War. So obviously taking advantage um, of the genocide in Gaza to effectively conduct another form of ethnic cleansing in the West Bank. Another NGO, Israeli Ir Amim, um, talks about Israel having approved plans for 700 new settler units in the occupied East Jerusalem area, including home demolition and demolition of infrastructure. Um, so the Peace Now report uh, talks about a record number of new nine, nine new outposts Sorry, in a span of about three months, a record number of 18 illegal roads paved or authorized by settlers. The settlers returned to Amona 
an outpost that was evacuated in 2017 following a court order. Settlers evacuated it in exchange for financial compensation and the settlement of Amihai was established. The Huwara bypass road has been nearly deserted since the efforts to open it. A new phenomenon of settlers closing Palestinian traffic routes against military orders. Building fences instead of new settlements, a significant portion of the outposts and roads are located on private Palestinian land. So this is a continuation of the land grab that began in 1948 or even before. Um, the three months of war in Gaza are being exploited by settlers to establish facts on the ground uh, and effectively take control of extensive areas in Area C, um, which is Israeli-controlled occupied areas. Settlers decide where to build roads and outposts continuously, disregarding the legal status of the land. They persist in constructing outposts on private Palestinian land, defining open areas and restricting Palestinian movement in the West Bank. The permissive military and political environment allow the reckless construction and land seizure almost unchecked with minimal adherence to the law. The result is not only physical harm to Palestinians and their land, but also a significant political shift in the West Bank. The unchecked rampage of the settlers must be stopped now. And I just want to end. We've shown it once before. I've cut it down slightly. This is Daniela Weiss, who is a far right uh, representative of the Zionist settlers, describing in response to um, the, the, the reporter in the documentary Stone Cold Justice. Um, when he asks her, what would you say to a Palestinian child who would ask you if there is any chance of them ever having a Palestinian state? And this was her answer. This land was promised to the Jews by God and uh, all of it. It's true that in course of history, Arabs came to this uh, area from all over. But the promise of God is more important than the changes in history and the political changes. That is why you have to put it deep, deep into your mind that you, that you do not have any chance whatsoever in any point of history, neither you nor any of your offsprings, to ever have an independent state of your own here. Okay. I don't think there's anything to add. <laughs> no, indeed. Okay, thank you, Vanessa. Uh, now, let's uh, just go over to Poland for a second, because uh, events there over the last couple of weeks have been just quite incredible. Um, so yesterday we saw protests uh, outside the police station here. Basically, this is because the police had uh, decided to arrest two uh, law and justice MPs that had been found guilty of corruption uh, at the end of last year. Uh, this has all happened since uh, Donald Tusk became... Uh, Prime Minister. Um, and uh, let's have a look at, at this. This is uh, uh, the uh, Justice Secretary saying in, in Poland saying, everyone is equal before the law. He's tweeting this out as a result of, uh, of the arrest of these two MPs. Um, uh, um, sorry, that's the Interior Minister, the sort of Home Office Minister. So what's this all about? Well, basically, this has been going on for a little while. As I say, since Donald Tusk uh, arrived uh, as uh, uh, in, in control of uh, Polish politics. So let's bring them on screen here. Uh, and these are the two uh, key problem individuals, Donald Tusk on the, re uh, on the left and Jarosław uh, Kaczynski on the right. Now, uh, Kaczynski, uh, his brother was killed in the Smolensk uh, plane crash. A rabid anti 
Russian. Uh, he hates Russia with a passion um, and he loves Ukraine with a passion. Um, but he is now saying, or he was saying this morning, uh, we've now uh, our first political prisoners since 1989 in Poland. This is scandalous. They were convicted because they fought crime. People, some people would uh, <laughs> disagree with that, including those high in the social hierarchy. In short, we're witnessing a ferocity that reflects the nature of current power, which is itself uh, has people in parliament hiding behind immunity. There is no order in Poland. Well, at the moment, that is true. But of course, we've got to remember who Donald Tusk is. He was uh, president of the European Council uh, and uh, therefore one of the three European Union presidents. Uh, he is very much uh, a warmonger and very keen to pursue internationalist policies. I don't think Kaczynski was really any different. However, uh, the Law and Justice Party did have an argument with quite a significant argument with the EU in recent uh, years. Anyway, they lost the election. Uh, Tusk uh, set up a coalition government as a result. Uh, and then we've seen this chaos, which includes, by the way, the closing down of the uh, national state broadcaster. Uh, perhaps the same should happen in the UK. I don't know. But anyway, uh, the Law and Justice party here, uh, this was going back to late December, uh, holding a sit, sit in because the uh, TVP world, uh, state TV, was effectively shut down by Tusk's regime. So uh, we'll keep an eye on this. Some people calling this a coup. I, I'm looking at it more in terms of two sets of internationalist poli uh, uh, politicians uh, fighting with each other in a pretty pathetic way. But anyway, we'll keep an eye on it and, and report as it goes. In the meantime, very briefly, I just wanted to bring this on screen. Alex uh, sent me this this morning. Uh, this is from La Stampa in Italy. Now, of course, we've been talking about uh, defense union in uh, the uh, EU for quite some time. Just do a quick translation of one thing that he says in this particular interview. He says, we need a European army. Uh, defense and a common army must become a concrete fact, no longer postponable. National resistance to sharing even these Pieces of sovereignty will always be strong, but if we remain divided, we will always be defenseless sparrows in a world where eagles fly. Now, of course, they're particularly concerned at the moment in case Donald Trump would once again become uh, president of the United States because he has said that he would uh, remove the US from NATO. Uh, whether that would happen or not is very much a matter of debate, but the point is that uh, uh, when Trump was uh, president the first time around, he was heavily criticizing uh, the EU for the fact that the US was spending more on defense of the EU than anybody else. So certainly he would like to see uh, an EU army, but th this is a bit of concern that perhaps uh, the money would stop uh, from the uh, US side. If you want to get some of the background to this, now I appreciate this particular uh, feature on the UK Column website, uh, that we have a timeline and a bunch of articles is talking about things up to the point of Brexit really, but it, it shows the, the uh, state of EU military integration as it stands at the moment. Um, and uh, so can, people can go there and have a look at some of the background uh, to this. Now, Vanessa, let's just uh, come back to you quickly and uh, situation in Yemen. Yeah, I mean, I just really wanted to show there has been um, what was described as the defense minister in the UK as the biggest attack by Yemen against, I think it's an American ship heading um, to Israel today that is being reported just before I came on. But what I wanted to highlight here is uh, a Yemeni official's interview with the BBC. I tweeted it out yesterday. It's had almost 800,000 views, all of them complimentary. There isn't a single uh, critical reply. 
Um, and, and there's a very good reason why. So this is BBC Arabic asking the question, um, and this is the priceless response from the Yemeni official, which I just wanted to share today. ولكن ما علاقتكم أنتم بما يحدث هناك يعني أنتم على بعد أميال وأميال لديكم مشاكلكم الخاصة في الداخل اليمني لديكم مشاكلكم مع التحالف الدولي الذي تقوده السعودية يعني ما العلاقة مع هذا سوى أنكم يتم تحريككم لهذا الهدف يعني أما بالنسبة لبايدن كان يعني هو جار نتنياهو يسكنون في شقة واحدة والرئيس الفرنسي أيضا يسكن في نفس الطابق ورئيس الوزراء البريطاني يسكن في نفس العمارة أم أن بينهم وبين الكيان المحتل آلاف الأمير I mean it's just absolutely priceless if people couldn't read the subtitles so the BBC reporter infers that they're being directed by Iran to carry out the attacks against the Israeli bound vessels Um, and he replies, and, and she says, basically, you know, because you're miles away from Palestine. And he says, is Biden a neighbor of Netanyahu? So they live in the same apartment. Does the French president also live on the same floor with them? What about the British prime minister? Does he live in the same building with them? I mean, he then continues to talk about their crimes in the Middle East. But I just thought this reply in itself was, was the best way to handle the BBC. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, and I just want to end uh, today with the Horizon IT scandal again, uh, because developments yesterday and on Monday, we were talking about uh, the 38 degrees petition uh, for uh, Paula Venels to uh, be stripped of her CBE that had received a million signatures so far. Well, she caved to a certain degree to the pr uh, pressure. Uh, and she released a statement yesterday, which said this, I continue to support and focus on cooperating with the inquiry and expect to be giving evidence in the coming months. I have so far maintained my silence as I considered it inappropriate to comment publicly while the inquiry remains ongoing and before I have provided my oral evidence. I am, however, aware of the calls from sub-postmasters and others to return my CBE. I have listened and I've confirmed that I return my CBE with immediate effect. Now, what she didn't say, but I have it on good authority that she was thinking it, Uh, was that I'm not handing back any pension or bonuses. Bankruptcy is only for the falsely accused. And of course, uh, most people measuring that at about three million pounds worth. Uh, but she, what she did go on to say was that she's truly sorry for the devastation caused to the sub-postmasters and their families, whose lives are torn apart by being wrongly accused and wrongly prosecuted as a result of the Horizon system. Um, so that's what she has done. Uh, she's handed back her gong. Uh, we'll see what happens next. Um, now, in the meantime, quite a number of people wanting to criticize this man, uh, Keir Starmer, uh, who, of course, was director for, of public prosecutions uh, for part of the time that these prosecutions were going on. Um, and I'm going to say that, unfortunately, in this case, he can't be held responsible for this. Jimmy Savile, maybe that's certainly something to be said there, but in this case, probably not. And the reason for that is because the post office brought these prosecutions themselves. It did not go through uh, the, uh, the Director of Public Prosecutions or the, C, uh, the uh, uh, prosecuting authorities in the UK. Uh, now, uh, a Labour politician, however, who has, does have questions to answer, though, is Ed Davey, Sir Ed Davey, and maybe he wants to be handing back his gong as well. So, uh, sorry, Lib Dem, I do apologise. Uh, former Lib Dem Energy Minister, he was uh, the 
post office minister at the time, and he was the man who refused to meet with the people uh, on the receiving end of this this problem. Um, so we're going to uh, end with that, and uh, we'll keep an eye on how this develops over the coming weeks and months. Um, we will be back in a few minutes for extra if you're a UK Call member. Uh, if you're not, uh, then we will be back um, on Friday, but don't forget uh, the interview that goes out tomorrow at 1pm. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.